0: Today, we are talking to an attorney who has served as a prosecutor in child welfare. Join us today on Fostering the Future.
1: Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat.
2: We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future.
0: Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org.
2: This is Kat, and I'm here with Jack, and today we have a special guest, Rob Callahan, who is a former ASA... And currently is a defense attorney for Callahan and King.
1: Hey.
0: <laughs> Welcome, Rob. Welcome.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I should make a disclaimer, which is that I was an assistant district attorney as opposed to AUSA. AUSA is uh, for the, the the feds, federal prosecutors, but I was the state prosecutor.
2: You know, I don't even know the difference. Like until just now. I didn't know the difference. Thank you for clarifying.
1: Yeah, um, in terms of what we do, it's essentially the same job. It's just for different agencies.
2: So Rob, let me ask you a very serious question. What is your favorite drink at
0: Starbucks?
1: A Grande White Chocolate Mocha Non-Fat No Whip with a shot of caramel.
0: Rob, let me ask you, what was your first experience with foster care? When you were growing up, did you know any foster kids? Did you know any social workers?
1: I didn't know anyone in the foster care system, to my knowledge, growing up, although asterisk to that, my little brother, who's 13 years younger than me, we fostered to adopt him and then adopted him into our family. Now, at that point in time, you know, when he came along, I was 13. And so I was a punk and I didn't appreciate um, being dethroned from my uh, role as the favored son in our house. But um, yeah, he's actually a miracle baby. He was born three months early, one pound, eight ounce, in hindsight. Did you say
0: one pound eight ounces? Yeah.
1: Yes, ma'am. Yep. Wow. And now wow. 30 I mean, years ago, he's, he, he is a strapping young lad. I mean, his biceps are ridiculous. He's a great guy. I love him. Um, but yeah, I was a real brat. And so I didn't quite understand what I was living through at the time. And it's only when I look back at it, when I say, like, oh yeah, we went to that hearing and we did this thing and I kind of put the pieces together. And realize just, you know, yeah, the, the the miracle that his adoption was.
2: I'd love to interview your mom.
1: Oh, my goodness. She can talk. Well,
2: I know. I look at your Facebook. Hi, mom. Yeah. That's a positive thing for a podcast. It is. And, and I always always like, she kind of fills my cup, you know, when I see her posts on your Facebook, I'm like, Oh, Mrs. Callahan, you know, um, no, no, that's, that was, um, a long time ago when it comes to the foster care worlds there, you know, the roles were really different and, you know, I don't know what they were because I was uh, 13 also, or maybe 12. (laughs) So that, you know, that was a really different world and gosh, I'd love to hear about that. And And I'd love to hear more about that from you, too. That had to be a really incredible experience. Rob, can you tell us what drove your decision to go into
1: law? I knew I wanted to be a lawyer at age 11. And that stemmed a lot from the fact that your audience can't see this. So I'll say it for the audio. I'm an African-American and I grew up mostly in the South, uh, particularly Louisiana. And at that time, there was just a lot of what we now call microaggressions that our family experienced on a regular basis. And so I remember stories of my, my mother coming home almost, it seemed like daily, just crying in tears, talking about some incident that happened at the grocery store or at the school or at the, you know, just wherever. And I remember saying to her, well, you should just go, tell the police, you know, just in my naive, probably like eight-year-old um, voice then, and her just kind of politely, you know, discrediting or disregarding my, my suggestion. So that continued until at some point um, around the time that I turned 11, I realized that there were these things called lawyers and that they actually fight for justice. And so at that point, I was sold. I knew at that point that's what I was going to do. I didn't have the best grades in high school. Um, so I, so high school was of survival for me. And I went to college and college was pretty good, although my grades were not great, which made getting into law school difficult. And I managed to get myself into Baylor Law School. I had a lot of extracurriculars. I think I am a pretty decent writer. And so I sold them on my admission application essay. And so I I get to Baylor Law School. (laughs) And after fighting tooth and nail to get in, I have to fight tooth and nail to get out. (laughs) because Baylor Law School was uh, academically rigorous, I think is the best way to say it. Um, A lot of different programs in the country will be, it'll be the situation that your first year is your hardest year, and then it gets progressively easier before you graduate. It's a three-year program. So at Baylor, your first year is hard. It's difficult, just as as difficult as everywhere else in the country. But then third year is when we have all of our advocacy exercises in conjunction with, our study of professional responsibility and rules of advanced rules of civil procedure, advanced rules of criminal procedure, um, and just a lot of rules of evidence, ins and outs, and so our third year actually becomes the hardest year. So getting out was difficult, but I managed to do it by the skin of my teeth. And you know that experience for me, I think, really set the the standard. A lot of my classmates did well academically went to go do great things and and big law and, and, and the like, I remember looking at them and their success and not begrudging it, but just realizing I had something to contribute to the legal community, but I couldn't get a shot in my grades preceded me and in a lot of cases precluded me from getting those types of interviews. Now, if you look at my advocacy uh, grades, I mean there's not an advocacy class that I didn't get an A in. Um, I was on the mock trial team, but for when it came to test taking and the like, I just could not figure it out. Well, lo and behold I'm 43 now, I think. Lo and behold, I found out when I was 40 that I'm slightly dyslexic. So that <laughs> (laughs) that explained a lot of my my academic performance. So all that to say what I tell people when they're considering going to law school, when we interview interns, when we interview new hires for our, our legal staff, I tell people, you know, I can teach you how to do the law. Like the rules are in the book. Anybody can figure it out, you know, but I can't teach you to have good character. And so what's most important to me. I don't care about your grades. I care about you as a person, like what your character is because I can't train character. So that's the uh, medium length story version of um, how I got in and out of law school, why it was so difficult and part of the philosophy of how we hire at our office.
2: I mean, that's amazing. Having dyslexia, Even mild dyslexia, that's a roadblock that is almost impossible to overcome, especially without accommodations. That's really, really challenging. I can't imagine reading legal documents, having that obstacle to overcome because they're difficult to read for anybody (laughs) and having an additional roadblock had to be really challenging.
1: Well, I didn't realize that it was particularly challenging at the time because I thought it was normal. So I thought that it was everyone else's normal as well. And I mean, the the closest I ever got to figuring it out was that, I mean, after I read something in a book for about 30 minutes, my eyes would just get tired. I could not stay awake. Uh And none of my other friends around me had that problem when they were reading the material. And we read a lot of material in school. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that was as close as I, I ever came to maybe figuring it out. I mean, other than that, I mean, I I understood everything, and so I was just so used to powering through everything, pull yourself up by the boot, you know, bootstraps, grin and bear it, all that stuff. This is law school. It's Baylor Law School. It's the boot camp of law schools. Yeah. You know, suck it up and go. And you know that I just thought that that's how it was for everybody.
2: After you graduated, you had a different job before you started your own company, though, didn't you?
1: Yes. So, in 2006, I graduated from Baylor Law School, and I was licensed in the fall of 2006. Started. Um, actually, I was working for a private defense firm for a little while. Started in the spring of 2007, working for the district attorney's office, prosecuting everything that you can imagine. Initially, I was doing smaller things, but by the time I was done after four years, I was doing everything up to you know capital murder cases. I say capital murder is mini cap technically for those that are in the note but um, you know sexual assault um, so everything that you can think of from you know traffic ticket to the most heinous crime you can think of um, in 2011 I left the district attorney's office and went into private practice and I didn't intend actually or didn't want to go into private practice uh, at least not initially but I felt very strongly um, as a believer I'm a Christian and I felt just very clearly that God was telling me, I want you to stay here in Waco. I want you to open your own private practice. That was a real jarring idea for me because I had developed this moral clarity as a prosecutor that made me think that you couldn't possibly do justice or be involved in the administration of justice if you're on the defense side of things. And so the Lord really had to, to work in me and, and humble me and, and change that perception. And so that um, led to, in 2013, um, i found Formed Callahan and King, which is the the firm that I'm now one of the partners of with uh, one of my dearest friends. You know, fast forward to you know 2021, we have four attorneys, and I think that we've got six professional staff on hand, including recently a licensed master social worker, and we have a fifth attorney that will be starting as soon as he gets his bar results in November. So we're we're growing.
2: That's, I had no idea you were that large. That's amazing. That's a you're lot of gross. You're big
1: time.
0: You're,
2: <laughs> you're really. Not only are you big time, but you're big time Waco. That's big.
1: <laughs> hashtag shiplap justice.
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> hashtag Waco town. Anyway, um, can you tell us what uh, what experiences you've had with the foster care system and with the department within your your current role and within your role as a prosecutor?
1: So my first experience in the foster care system was as a prosecutor, and that was working besides CPS, uh, which is you know the Department of Family and Protective Services here in Texas. Um, we refer to them as Child Protective Services. And the thing that was was really interesting is that I didn't have a real grid for what I was walking into, and the stories of brokenness and and hurt. You know, it was it was very overwhelming. It was a lot. on on the heart. um, Initially, I just stepped into that role really covering someone else. I wasn't that wasn't my normal routine as a prosecutor at that point in time. Now, I should stop here and flag something in our county, in McLennan County. The department CPS is represented by the district attorney's office. And that's not necessarily the case everywhere. So oftentimes, the way that a case would come to our attention was because a criminal case was behind it. And so they were interlinked in that, that way. So yeah, I remember the first time that I, I went out to the juvenile justice system court. That's where we were having a uh, court for CPS as well. And I mean, just bald, just bald. Um, yeah, you know, I was I was a mess. So I don't know. After maybe two and a half years, um, I really started praying about the idea of getting more involved in these cases, crimes against women and children, um, which had a, a huge overlap with CPS cases, and just really felt like it was work that I needed to do. So that was my experience on the prosecution side. On the defense side, um, there's two different hats that I've worn. One is representing parents who have been separated from their children um, and had allegations brought against them by the department or they're trying to work services or or prove their fitness. But the other experience that I've had and is actually the most fulfilling for me of all the jobs that I do is working with foster parents who are intending to adopt, helping them get standing when they feel like the system is just a, a whirlwind of confusion and they don't understand what's going on and what can they object to and who's going to listen to them. You know, a lot of the times they just feel like, well, I don't have any agency in the case. And so in Texas, you have the ability, if you're a foster parent, um, after a certain amount of time to petition the court to intervene in the case. And then at that point, you become a party to the case. So, you know, you have all the the rights to get involved in the the jury trial process and to call witnesses and cross-examine and investigate and all kinds of things, and that is just super fulfilling. I mean,
2: that has to be really empowering to have someone like you on their side, someone who knows the ins and the outs, and especially someone who has been on both
0: sides. One of the things I, I feel like is a common question amongst foster parents here, and I'm sure it works differently everywhere, but I'm curious how it is over in Texas, where there are certain rules about who can communicate with the assistant state attorney's I think that often foster parents are told you're not allowed to talk to them. I know guardian ad litems aren't allowed to talk to them without going through their attorney. But sometimes you feel like that's the person I'm supposed to be providing this information that I have. So are you aware of what the rules are these days over in Texas as far as who is allowed to communicate with this assistant state attorneys during a foster care case?
1: Our rules concerning communication are more liberal. We are informed. By one guiding principle, which is that you're not supposed to have ex parte communication with the court that's a hard and fast rule and what ex parte means is is literally one one party or like one party without the other but that's also suggestive of interaction between the parties as well so like for example it would be kind of weird for cps to have a conversation with the ad litem but not have a conversation with the guardian ad litem about the same thing and just kind of keep the guardian ad litem out of the picture the thing that's really weird is that if you're in a situation where you're a foster family, you have not intervened yet, you have no legal status, and that's the exact problem. And so therefore, you're not you're not a side in the case. In other words, there's no harm in theory with you communicating with the prosecutor because there's it's not information that you're hiding or secreting as a party from the other side. Um because you're not a side. <laughs> because you're not a side. Exactly right. Now, the issue that I think that some caseworkers may have, your guardians ad litem, your volunteers at CASA and things like that may have with the foster families. It's one of those situations when like when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so you're so used to the same type of interaction with foster families. It's like, oh, this is just a whining family. Oh, this is just a needy family. Oh, they're just whining. They just want somebody to talk to. They just need to go to counseling. No, 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 no. I'm not the person. <laughs> and so it it becomes hard to to become self-aware enough to say like, oh no, they, they actually have information that's pertinent that we need to make sure that we integrate into our investigation of the case. And so they're used to people giving the wrong kinds of information to prosecutors or to the advocates. And so they don't want that happening. And so that's, that's why it's discouraged. There's no rule against it, um, but that's why it's discouraged. Now the, the great thing is when you decide to intervene, well, now you've got attorneys representing the bio parents. They have a voice. You've got the ad litem for the the child. You've got the, uh, which is an an attorney ad litem. You've got the guardian ad litem, which is an unlicensed, like not an attorney acting as a sort of private extra set of checks and balances, you know, caseworker, manager. You've got sometimes CASA uh, involved in court appointed special advocates. You've got the department that's represented by often your prosecutors. Um, so it's you know, CPS. Um, and then now add to the mix, you have this foster family that has their own attorney. They know the lingo, they know the system, and they know what to screen. And in fact, I think that the, the state and the other actors appreciate having another attorney involved in it, acting on behalf of the family, because we get to act as a buffer between the family and And the, and the government. And so, you know, we, we get to say like, hey, this is important, you know, as opposed to the emotional brunts, the mo- the emotional hits we take. And then, you know, we can filter in the the important legal information um, that they need to know and uh, go from there. That's I, I think I would be remiss without giving a shout out at this point to our, our case manager. So I've mentioned before we brought in a master social worker to our office. Her name's Hope Mustakin, and she is amazing. And she's our case manager because that is her role in all our cases is to basically act as an interface for the clients to make sure, along with all the others, but to make sure that their needs are being heard. And so just even within our firm, we know that we have the tendency to potentially discount or get jaded and and just sort of start seeing everything the same. And it's her job to sort of help us break through that haze and say, no, seriously, you need to pay attention to this. Just really advocate for the clients just within our office so i i think that the system definitely needs that if we need it everyone else does too
2: i think that's fantastic because everything that you just mentioned is a real issue and i know around here we are all tired because we are all taking that emotional hit and so it's it's really nice that you have this um this rule that adds benefit to this world you know where we're able to um provide permanency to children. So all these parties that you just mentioned, what happens when they don't agree? The CASA, the GAL, the case manager. What happens when we get to court and they don't agree?
1: Unfortunately, it happens more often than not that not all of the the players, even on the side of advocacy for the child, agree. We had a case where the department and the ad litem and the guardian ad litem were all on the same page with the the thought being, I don't really know whether or not we have grounds to, to terminate. So the child had been removed, child was living with the family for a year, and the The grounds alleged. When I say grounds, I'm talking about the state's petition saying this child doesn't need to be in this home because of abuse or neglect or you know whatever have you. They they had grounds to remove, but since they removed, the biological parents was kind of sort of doing their part. They're sort of working services, but not supposed to get a job, but couldn't. Allegedly, was supposed to live somewhere, but. living with parents and just, you know, it was, you know, exercising visitation regularly, but it's kind of like just doing the bare minimum to kind of get by. And so by the time we got in on the case, I mean, everyone was pretty much resolved that if they went forward with termination, they weren't going to win. And so they might as well reunify. And we were able to do some investigation and and show some private investigation using our our, our firm that showed that this father was actually un fit and one of the things that was really interesting there was a moment where so the there's drug use allegations that had been part of the basis for removal in the first place and a bad trip led to a, a handicap on the part of the the biological father and so he was paralyzed on one half of his body and you know was was doing some things um, but not doing enough and not trying enough it, it wasn't you know because of his disability well we get into court this is a jury trial we're you know fighting for termination and we were able to show that even though he was told by his doctors that he can't drive because he may have a seizure at any moment in time, um, that he's still driving. And in fact, we caught him on video driving to the courthouse, parking across the street, switching so that his mother was driving the car and then driving into the parking lot of the the courthouse. So that in case anyone saw him, it looked like the mother was driving the car. And it was, it was, it was, one of those moments where, um, you know, it was one of those kind of matlock moments where we had the video of it. Um, our soon to be fifth attorney was actually the one that recorded it with uh, another one of our our staff. I mean, it was this it was great. You know, we set them up and asked all the questions about, you know, how you can care for the the child with your disabilities and are you obeying all the different things that you've been told by your doctors and are you obeying the different expectations that set out by CPS and you're not driving and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then we just, you know, blew it open with the video. And so by the end of it, CPS, the ad litem, the guardian ad litem, we were all able to be on the same page. This, you know, jury, you should terminate. And the jury did uh, terminate so that the, the foster family could adopt. But, you know, it, it wouldn't have happened if they hadn't had an intervener. The, that foster family wouldn't have been able to adopt without that intervention.
0: I know that every case is different and obviously every journey is going to go in a different direction depending on what comes up. But what is the general process as that assistant state attorney that is handling the case?
1: Yes. So as a prosecutor, we don't even necessarily get every case that comes into the system in Texas. So, you know, you start off with, let's say that a mom has a baby at the hospital and the baby shows to be positive for methamphetamine. So CPS is called, they remove the child at the hospital. Um, They do what's uh, called an emergency removal. And then the the biological parent has the right to have a hearing on whether or not that removal was rightful or not. Then there's an investigation that's involved. And so you've got the investigative phase where you have one set of caseworkers and one set of case managers um, at CPS. And at the end of the investigation, they can can make one of three conclusions. They can say that the allegations they believe to be true, so they are able to. They have reason to believe RTB uh, that the allegations are true, or they ha- are unable to determine UTD uh, whether the allegations are true, or they rule out the allegations RO. If they do anything other than rule out, then the investigation arm closes, and then they send the case to the the legal arm. Basically, what's important important for biological parents who have had their children removed to understand is that when you get the letter saying case is now closed, no further action necessary on your part, they're not, CPS is not saying, oh, our bad, here's the child. What they're saying is that we've made a determination. It's one of these three things. And because it was either unable to tell or we're able to verify that we do think the allegation is true. Now you're going to the legal arm. At that point in time, that's when the the case comes on the radar of the prosecutors because of a number of different processes. So one of them in our county, we have um, prosecutors have an interdisciplinary team meeting that will include literally at the same table different schools, um, like police agencies from different uh, ISDs, independent school districts. It will include staff from the Child Advocacy Center. It will include CASA. It will include um, the prosecutor for the state um, representing the department. It will include case managers or case workers at the department, and they will basically call cases in. This is an informal team huddle where they will they have a docket um, that they go through. Um, again, informal, no judge in the room. And they're basically saying, OK, case A, what's going on with this? And the case worker will say, OK, so this is the situation and this is what I think that we should do. And the prosecutor's there from the beginning taking notes before the, the file even comes across the prosecutor's desk, basically. And so very early on, the prosecutor has a lot of sway in the direction of the case and what sorts of things CPS should be doing or shouldn't be doing. Um, it gives opportunity for the department to ask the prosecutors and the other people in the room questions about, you know, how what do you think? how is there enough here? Is this justified? You know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and so they'll you know, go through a, a whole few pages, like 100 cases or whatever, um, in a period of time of this meeting um, and come out of it kind of, you know, with every caseworker or every different agency having uh, an idea of this is what we should be doing with the case. If the case is illegal, and it is going to, to be the case that the department is going to seek termination. They file a petition, and that's when the, the case that basically we heard a rumor of possibly a month ago now. You know, becomes formal. We're filing court paperwork saying we're we're going to take away this person's child unless they satisfy the department that they're going to live up to their obligations as a biological parent. And you know, I'm speaking inclusively. We, um, I'm talking about the state, the prosecutors. Very early on, prosecutors have the ability to um, give insight on the case. This cuts both ways. One of the good things about it is that if the prosecutors are the people that are also handling the CPS case, if there's a criminal case connected to the CPS case, so like let's say, for example, someone decides to rob a bank with their child in the car, and the car seat in the back, um, and then they you know run out the bank with the alarms going off and wearing a mask and they've got guns and police are shooting the car, you know, at the car and the kid's in danger. When you've got a criminal case and then you've got the CPS going at the same time. So the good thing about that being handled by the same agency is that there's no breakdown in communication. So the left hand doesn't have to worry about what the right hand is doing cuz they they know they're unified. The problem is that if if the same agency is handling it, the DA's office, there is a temptation or a push or a, a felt need to see success on both sides as a prosecutor. And so you'll see cases of, you know, arguably prosecutorial abuse where the state is putting the screws to the defendant on the criminal side because they wanna make sure that the bank robber ends up with a conviction and therefore they have a stronger case for termination on the civil side. And in fact, in Texas, Having um, a felony conviction or being on probation for a felony is a ground itself for removal. And so there's potential for abuse there because the same agency is is acting you know, tied to those two things. And it's really hard to judge what's in the best interest of the child when you're so focused on, I've got to get this guy and I'm going to get him over here and I'm going to get him over there.
2: There's definitely been abuse within the system, so I can see how that would happen.
0: Can you tell us about your best day as a prosecutor?
1: I had a case as a prosecutor where this woman had endured just years and years and years of domestic abuse, and she just had no self worth, like uh, just no sense of self worth. And she had actually reported the abuse a couple of times, and somehow or another, her husband, the defendant, had talked his way out of them. They didn't really stick. The cases weren't prosecuted. And so we were fighting as prosecutors against the defendant himself, but also kind of against the abused wife who was just kind of like, I don't want to be involved. I don't want to get my hopes up because it never works before. And this is just, you know, it's not going to go well for me. Ultimately, it's going to be worse for me. And so we were able to get a a guilty verdict and she changed. It was like a a flip got switched as soon as, As soon as she realized that, oh, a jury thought that my testimony was true, incredible. They believed me. He's now subject to being responsible for his actions. She just, it. she became another person. Just her, she, her countenance lightened. It, it was just a, a different person. She was just, it was like the world was seeing her for the first time. And- um Like so, she mattered. Like she mattered, yeah, she mattered. And um it was just a little subtle thing. You know, I'd, I've had, you know, that, what the sentence was in that case isn't important. The guy went to prison. But but the the point being like that was an opportunity that I had to confer dignity onto the life of a person that that mattered on a survivor. I had a really kind of haunting experience as a defense attorney that I I would call my best day. There was a client who was going to jail for uh, prison for about eight years and his wife and uh, their young son. I'm saying young, I'm thinking like two, maybe three, um, were outside the courtroom waiting for him to be sentenced. And I had had no previous interaction with them. uh, But after he had been sentenced, they pulled me aside and asked me about what happened in the case. And I was telling them about, you know, how he was sentenced and, um, you know, how parole works and just like how, how long it would likely be before he got back out. And, you know, I'm just the human moment of realizing, like, I'm explaining all this to the the wife and the mom and, you know, child of, of this client. And um, the day before I had brought, we, we keep toys in our office. So that when we have clients that have young children, they can feel like, you know, you you can play here, you can make noise here. Nobody's going to, you know, bark at you, yell at you or anything like that. Kids are welcome here. And we rotate the toys out so often. And the, the day before, one of my children children's Elmo doll stopped working and it was like one of these like tickle me Elmo kind of things uh-huh. and um tried changing the batteries the batteries weren't the problem just couldn't get it you know flipped all the switches Tried turning it on tried pressing his stomach really hard and uh Elmo just wasn't gonna laugh he's just dead okay fine it goes in the toy basket so uh I'm talking to her and um I realized you know I, I just I have an opportunity here to bless uh, this family. So I ran across the street where my office was at the time. And I grabbed this Elmo doll. I know the thing did not work. And I go downstairs, um, and across the street to the courthouse where I see them waiting on the bus. And I, I, walk up to the kid and I hand her the, the doll. I was like, Hey, will you take care of this Elmo for me? It doesn't work. She squeezes the doll and it laughs. And starts oh talking. my gosh. That's weird. <laughs> and this is a, this is a true story. It's a, it's, I actually, when it happened, um, I put it on my Facebook, so if you if you search um, somewhere in my profile, how I'm gonna do search that, for that. You, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was crazy. I mean, I was just like, "What just happened?" Oh <laughs> my up, gosh! And I told uh, I told my paralegal what happened, and it was like, it was it was. It was it was just the wildest thing that I felt like it was a miracle. So that that was the best day I've had as a defense attorney. Oh my Not, because, not because I haven't had victories. Like I mean, we we get not guilty verdicts. We return uh, families that are you know separated as as uh, advocates for biological families mm-hmm. or uh, parents. We we advocate on behalf of uh, foster families who intend to adopt. I, I love adoptions. It's one of the most most meaningful things that, that we do, but that, that was a high, that was, that was wild and, and nothing has come close to it.
2: Yeah. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty special. Rob, what's been the most difficult day for you?
1: Man, you have to narrow it down. I had a client within the last 30 days that committed suicide on the day of his sentencing.
2: Oh, I'm so sorry.
1: That's terrible. do. That's so yeah. hard, and that's that's the first time that I've had that happen. And the other thing that was difficult about it was that he was going to court to plead guilty and and sign for thirty years. So he was he was going to TDC. Um, he wasn't going to be coming back for a while. He absolutely did the crime. It was you know pretty heinous crime, but there. But he's still worthy of dignity and being seen as a person created in the image of Christ, uh, and so. So, you know, it was it was just hard. And it was so one of the other aspects of it was just realizing that, you know, how society looks at him uh, sort of a thing. And so, yeah, so that that was hard. I think when I was waiting for the jury to bring back their verdict in that case that I mentioned with the gentleman who was partially paralyzed because of drug abuse, I mean, we just ran a a roller coaster of emotions. And in fact, I think if I remember correctly, that they ended up having to bring Break for the evening so that they started deliberating one day, broke for the evening, and then came back and deliberated the other day. And just these were. The adoptive family, the foster family were dear, dear friends of mine. And just the idea of them not having the ability to take these children into their home and make them a forever family, like that was, that was heart wrenching. Um, the jury did fortunately decide to terminate and that freed them up to be able to adopt. But there was just so much adrenaline and stress. And so, like, after the case was closed and the jury was dismissed, I went out into the hall. It's so hard.
0: Yeah. I I mean it's really touching to hear an attorney that, you know, is so compassionate because a lot of the times like they're so formal that you don't think about how the mm-hmm. cases really affect them personally.
1: Yeah. Don't don't tell anyone though, okay?
0: I'm gonna tell everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Could you give us a word to describe foster care? Promise. Oh, I
2: like that. How do you see your role in foster care?
1: In whatever capacity that I serve, my job is to to perform excellently so that my clients feel the value of their their worth, that they that they feel heard, that they feel seen, um, that they feel like they have someone fighting for them, that they feel like they have. Um, so someone to walk the long road with them. There's a lot of things about the system that... Are routine that aren't necessarily right. That is so true. Yeah. And so having the opportunity to speak into a specific circumstance and to really shine a light on it and to 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 speak into it and to change or impact it, I do. I thank God for my my law degree. Like I I can't imagine not having the the ability to to have an impact in that way.
2: Everybody should be so. Well suited for their role and be able to make an impact in such a way. What would surprise most people to learn about your role?
1: I think what would surprise most people about my role is a little bit unique to my office. We're certainly not the only office that's like this but it's definitely true of us. We meet people, even foster children in their their time of greatest crisis. And especially if they've been in the system before, they're sort of used to the machine doing what the machine does. And I think that it surprises people when they realize that we're, our firm is actually taking the time to slow down and see them and to, to really walk with them. That's, that's our, our, job is not so much to represent people, but to to really walk beside them to be their 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 agent and their advocacy, their advocate speaking from a place of, of empathy, of, of really standing next to them. And so I think that what would surprise people is regardless of what side I'm on, I'm always trying to do the right thing. If I'm representing a biological mom or dad, I'm trying to do the right thing. If I'm representing a foster family, I'm trying to do the right thing. If I'm serving as an ad litem, I'm trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And shedding the stereotype of like, oh, well, this is just a lawyer and lawyers do what lawyers do, you know, paid hired guns, that kind of a thing.
0: What do you want people to know about attorneys
1: and child welfare? That we're not okay. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, Check on your favorite attorney. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think that we as a profession don't even really realize that we're not okay. You know, there's a reason why there's so much drug abuse, alcohol abuse, um, suicide rates when it comes to attorneys. Um, we deal with really heavy things. There's a great book that I have the opportunity to read this year called Trauma Stewardship. And it's all about secondary trauma. It's all about um, when you are... Are a witness to what the system does day in and day out to other people you're w- witnessing their trauma um, uh-huh. that traumatizes you and it's the same if you're a you know EMT, if you're a doctor in the emergency room, uh-huh. um, if you're a teacher in a school district where the the parents just you know aren't engaged and the the school system isn't engaged. If you're uh, working in you know the Department of Family Services and just case after case after case, uh-huh. um, yeah, like you, you just can't you can't possibly carry all that. Alone. And, no, and you can't. So, yeah. Yeah. And
0: yeah. I,
2: I think my most significant trauma fatigue was when I was a caseworker. And bringing that up is the perfect segue because we really wanted to ask you about your own personal self care routine. What are your ways to combat compassion fatigue, trauma fatigue, from the secondary trauma that we know you experience on a regular basis?
1: The first line of defense for combating compassion fatigue for me has been the people that I'm working with we've been really intentional about creating an office environment that is inclusive and loving and caring and uh, for for each other for our staff the the reason that that's important like but that's nothing that needs to be unique about Callahan and King that that should be the case in in every office we've chosen like-minded individuals who again going back to that issue on care I can't teach you to have good character. We've chosen other believers who are you know like-minded, justice oriented individuals who when I don't feel like waking up in the morning and going to the office, I, I go because I know that I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with the person you know that I work beside. So that's that's the first level. Um, we actually in our office we have a, a weekly time of we, we call it Jesus time but it's kind of it's kind of loose because we're not necessarily always praying. We're usually checking in on one another and just like, hey, what's going on in your life? and How are you doing? You know, to the extent that's possible, like with the exception of like, you know, some rare schedule stuff, that's that's a mandatory meeting. So everyone in our office is participating in it. So we're all connected in each other's life in that way. And then I didn't grow up with, you know, counseling and the rhythms of mental health uh, care and self-care that that wasn't part of my experience until the last, you Know, three years or so. Um, and it's been so rich. I've been going to counseling myself. Uh, we recommend counseling for everyone that we work with, um, oftentimes for our clients. Uh, there's a point in time where we actually uh, were working with and we we're about to work with, again, a local counseling uh, firm to mm-hmm. sort of subsidize counseling for people in the community that are otherwise not able to pay for it. And so, you know, I so I, I go to counseling two months. My great chagrin, I, I work out as often as possible. And, you know, I'm not an athlete. Y'all, if you if you could see the video, uh, like imagine the Michelin man. But, you know, like the, the tires haven't been changed from black <laughs> and, you know, it's... it's tie is a long tie instead of a bow tie. Anyway, um that's, you know, I I I try to work out as much as possible and encourage uh people in our office to go take walks and, and things like that so that we're just releasing those endorphins. I am prescribed and I take uh depression medication. Um so you know I have a doctor involved in that team with, you know, the counselor. I try as much as possible to relieve myself of the the what feels like an obligation to be plugged into everything that's happening in the world. Uh Um because, and this is, this is difficult because I you want to know what's going on in the world. You want to be informed. You want to know, especially about injustices, but we were not built to know everything about every situation everywhere, every time, especially in the pandemic where there's just, you know, harrowing news day after day. And there's, you know, all these different debates about whose life does matter, who doesn't, should I wear a piece of cloth for the good of my neighbor or not? Like I just, uh-huh. all that stuff just really wears, uh, wears you down. And so I, I try to unplug or be intentional about what I'm digesting. Um, so audiobooks, podcasts, things like that, mm-hmm. that I've met with varied success <laughs> on hard. Unplugging from social media. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, yeah. But it's always rich when I do if I if I can force myself into a rhythm, it works so much better. And the world keeps spinning without my needing to be informed of that particular detail. The news will come to you. I found like I, I don't need to know when, you know, the breaking incident happens. It will be on my computer. Someone's going to mention it. Like I, I it's okay for me not to know. First thing.
2: It's true. It's true. That's um, I have found that to be true. I work long days, two days a week, like very long days and I you know it like never fails once or twice a month someone will mention something one of those days and I'm just like a tear in headlights mm. like I have no idea because mm. I haven't been on any social media and mm-hmm. I've been watching the news and all I've done is work for two days there have been <laughs> there have been several um huge events that have happened on those days um one of them was the Capitol um, when the capital was the attack January on the th- capital top, yeah, I was I've lost my words <laughs>
0: the siege,
1: <laughs> yeah, let's call it what it is <laughs>
2: the attack on the capital January thirteenth. um that was one of them. And then there have been a few other, oh, the there was an Afghanistan attack. so I have a few people that know that I'm usually working on those days, and they will keep me relatively informed but I'll like show up somewhere and and yeah, you know, I'm like a in headlights. I have no idea what you're talking about unless I'm seeking out the news because I'm not on social media and cause, I mean, there's no time. I'm not even returning text messages for the most part. I know exactly what you're talking about. The news will come to you.
1: Yeah, no, for, for sure. <laughs> it will come to you. What's interesting is last year I reached a point where I was just, I mean, I was almost like physically, nervously shaking from just all the stuff. And um, I asked a couple of guys to commit with me like, Like, hey, for 24 hours, we're not going to consume the news. We're going to spend this time in prayer um, and just kind of see like, you know, what God has to say to us and and, uh, touch base on the other end of it. And I started journaling in that moment. And the journaling has become a rough draft of a manuscript for a book that I'm hoping wow. to put out. Um, and so that has actually, that's, that outlet has been really good for my self-care because the the things that I need to say and want to say, they don't have to go unsaid. It's just that I'm looking for a more receptive audience, you know, Pearls Before Swine and all that. And so um, hopefully that will pick up. And if it does not It was just a really good exercise in in journaling my emotions. So
0: Yeah, I
2: have done a little bit of that in my notes in my iPhone, like when I've had frustrations and I've thought this is like my letter to the editor and I'm the editor, you know,
0: (laughs) but I would be really embarrassed if someone went back and read through them. What has been the biggest struggle that you have faced in child welfare?
1: I think taking care of my own mental health, um, that, that really is the constant struggle um, because we're involved in in some sort of form of crisis, whether it's even if I'm I'm working for a foster family. I can't ignore the fact that, you know. 10 feet away from me down the table is a mother that's sobbing because she, you know, is afraid that she's going to lose custody of her children and never see them again. And so that that struggle is real and it's ever present and it has to be acknowledged and named and then it has to be addressed.
0: Yeah, I've, I mean, I I definitely feel you on that. And I, I think I've mentioned before, like specifically speaking about one of my kids, though this is probably true for all of them under no certain terms should he have should he ever be parented by his biological parents however watching her have parental rights terminated was one of the most traumatizing experiences of my mm-hmm. life and it definitely like it broke me it broke my heart um, it ripped me out from the inside not just for my son but for his mom and again like I would be terrified to have him alone in a room with her Yeah, um, he shouldn't be with her she shouldn't be responsible for any children. She's not a safe person, but to, to be present in that moment when her rights were terminated is devastating. It's just devastating yeah. because she has value and yeah. we haven't found a way in this world to acknowledge that and allow her to have a piece of him. In a safe way. Mm. And well, but even in other cases, like when you go to court and and you're there for your hearing, and you know there is another situation oh, going yeah. on, and you overhear part of you know a termination happening or filing for termination, I might not know the child or the parents or the foster parents or even any of the parties involved. But when you see it happening and understand the consequences to all parties involved, uh-huh. obviously to the child, regardless of best case scenario for them and the healthiest option for them you know the tearing of that mm-hmm. uh, biological connection is is horrendous and 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 to be there for any part of of that part of the process is mm-hmm. is devastating for any onlooker so is- i i can't imagine to be the attorney mm-hmm. on any of the sides yeah. having to go through that and and feel that pain along with them the person with the power the person with
2: the the power
1: yeah when i Um, when i talk to juries about biological parents when i'm representing the biological parents one of the images that i use is you know imagine that feeling when you go to the mall on christmas and your child you know runs away from you for a second hides under the clothes rack or something like that and you you know you you go look for the child and they're not on the clothes rack and then you go look you know under the you know display and they're not there and and that kind of Thing you're like, oh my gosh, where's my child? And that panic that you feel in those moments. and you know, most of us, uh, hopefully, you know, we're only experiencing that for a moment until we find our child again. But imagine if that feeling in your gut never went away.
2: I think that's a really good illustration. And I, when I was probably my first or second year of college, I had this horrible nightmare. That and my mom is like, she's loving, she's gregarious, people adore her, like. she was one of the best things that happened to my education because the people that met her
0: like adored her. And she can't hear this podcast, so it's not for her benefit that you're saying this. It's
2: really not. I mean, I had to interpret for all my parent-teacher conferences, but the teachers didn't even want me there. They just wanted her. She's just like made of ooey gooeyness. And, Mm. um, but I had this nightmare, like freshman, sophomore year of college, that she looked at me and said, I don't love you anymore. And I was like, what? And she's like, I don't love you anymore. And it was just this like, I mean, this horrible feeling of like, I just don't love you anymore. Like, get away from me. I don't love you anymore. That's all I remember. But I remember it was like the most like horrific feeling in the world, like like what a Dementor's kiss must feel like in Harry Potter. If anybody I don't even know if you watch Harry Potter, Jack, <laughs> you probably don't. I've seen
0: stuff. Harry Potter. Yeah, but you're not into it. I'm like not into like into it. a Potterhead. So, um, I enjoy it. I've read the books. Okay. I, read read the books. So I read the books. Can I read get the books. Them. All right.
2: I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> um, so it was like waking up was such a relief. Like waking up was like such a like you cannot replace your parent. Yeah, no. you cannot like when when nobody else kid. likes you you have your parent who loves you. But what are some of the biggest struggles you face working in your role as an attorney in Waco Town? I think
1: that uh, one of, I think bringing the machinery gears to a halt. when yeah. When everyone in the system is so used to, this is how we always do things. Um, you know, I'm a hammer. That's a nail. That's a nail. That's a nail. That's a yeah. nail. No, that's a That's a great screw. analogy. Yeah, you know, one of my co-workers says all the time like for clients that get really frustrated um and are hurt by the system he says you're not wrong but the system ain't right and that feeling of helplessness that, like, I don't have a position of authority and the ability to just say this is the right thing and this is what should be done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything has to be hashed out in this adversarial system. That that's one of the biggest frustrations in my role in working in foster care. Um, and so, you know, if you have, a, you know, again, a judge that you know, he's got a docket that's got you know, 25 cases on it and they're already running late and you're getting close to lunch And, you know, you got a caseworker that doesn't even really know the case and they're just reading somebody else's notes you know you're at a status hearing and you know the, the state's just saying that this case is like all the others We're, you know we want to make sure that you keep this child in foster care and, and don't do a monitored return at this point judge and we've got the ad litem just you know kind of looking through their notes and just kind of like you know uh, yeah what what they said you know just like just the, that circus you know yeah that's, that's, that's a huge frustration for me. What
0: can you think your community can do to prevent more kids from needing to come into care?
1: This, I, I'm afraid that this might sound like a, a really idealistic, optimistic, naive answer, but just the involvement of the community like, to, be, to be to really be a community means that we're we're living together playing together operating together functioning we're a part of each other's lives we care about one another and so knowing, for example, that your neighbor has a problem with, you know, drug addiction or, you know, there's a lot of traffic coming in and out of their house kind of a thing. You have no ability or authority or moral authority to speak into their life if you're just a passive observer, just sort of looking down at them and being like, yeah, you know, crackhead, whatever. Um, and so therefore, when, you know, CPS comes knocking on their door, mm uh-huh and gets involved and the child is removed from the home, you know, it's in a way it's too late. The thing has progressed too far. I'm not saying that we have an obligation to tie people down and make them tell us about their lives and things like that. But the point just being that, you know, empathy, um, compassion, involvement, investment, it goes a long way. And I think that it's really tempting to stay comfortable and to remain inside of a bubble and to kind of look at my four and no more but if you can do something that's going to help someone long term not not no I'm not I'm not talking about you know every week I'm you know doing this for so and such because they just won't get their life together but if if you have the ability to really invest in someone's life that is a form of prevention Right. Because if they're hopefully, if they're, they're successful, if they're, if they've got a working job, if they've got childcare, if they've got this thing going for them, then they've got more resources. They've got more support. They've got a community behind them. And so hopefully they won't end up in the situation where, you know, there's a need for. The, the system to to foster the child.
2: So there is a researcher, Bronfenbrenner who totally supports what you're saying. The systems being in place are what help people to be successful. I mean, especially children, help children to be successful in the long run. Um, but we need those systems. We need systems that overlap. We need next door neighbors who also volunteer at our schools. We need people at our churches who also teach a dance class. We need people who work at our grocery store who we also see in the crosswalk. You know, we need those systems in place. We need people who we can be accountable to and people who can um, help us. You know, when we need help. So I think community is very important. Um, I think your answer was very insightful.
0: So uh, what are your goals to make positive change in your community?
1: Well, we are in the process of working on our formal mission statement um, because... You know, for so long, we, we know each other in our office. We know each other in our office. We know how we operate. We know what we generally believe in and what we're excited to, to see happen in our community. But it's so important to, to write down, this is what our vision is, because that's what we go back to. And so our base mission is to make the promises of justice real for our community. As we interrogate that, one of the nuances is that we say we can go to bed rested if we hold the powers that be accountable. They sit up and take notice that we're involved in the case and that the process is fair, whether that's because they fear what we bring to the table or whether it's because our involvement convicts them.
2: That's powerful. Thank you so much for being with us today
1: yeah
2: I think this too. was really enjoyable appreciate it rob
0: thank you
1: thank you kat and jack i appreciate what you all are doing and i love the voice that you bring into this space and so i appreciate you for the work that you're doing well
2: i have been thankful for the voice that you bring into this world and the civil rights world and the advocacy world for a long long time so i'm glad that we got to spend this time together today so thank you so much
1: thank you so much for joining us today Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.